0: Should we fear the teachings of Islam? What about the Islamic term, Jihad? What exactly does it mean to most Muslims? Today, you'll hear from an international expert and you may be shocked at what you hear. This is Evidence and Answers with speaker and author, Dr. Pat Zukarin. Today, Pat examines the notion of Jihad in the Muslim world and what it could mean to every country on earth. This is a crucial and timely topic, and that's what we're all about at Evidence & Answers. When you get a chance, check out our website, EvidenceAndAnswers.org, for resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. That's EvidenceAndAnswers.org. Here's Pat Zuckerman.
1: All right, thanks a lot, Kevin. Should we be concerned about the rapid growth and influence of Islam in America? Is it a religion of tolerance and peace as portrayed in much of the media? Well, here to help us on this topic is Dr. Robert Spencer. Dr. Robert Spencer is the director of Jihad Watch, a program of the David Horowitz Freedom Center, and the author of nine books on Islam and Jihad, including New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Muhammad and The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam. He writes on topics that few want to write on, and he tells it just like it is. He's led seminars on Islam and Jihad for the United States Central Command, United States Army Command, and General Staff College, the U.S. Army's Asymmetric Warfare Group, the FBI, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and the U.S. Intelligence Community. He has a Master's of Arts in Religious Studies from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and has been studying Islamic theology, law, and history in depth for over 30 years. Dr. Spencer in the media, they are spreading the notion that Islam is a religion of tolerance and peace. Uh, Is that something that you would agree with?
2: No, Islam is not a religion of tolerance or peace. It is the only religion that has a developed doctrine, theology, and legal system that mandates warfare against unbelievers. So it's not a religion of peace. And it is the only religion that has a developed legal system that institutionalizes discrimination against non believers who live in the domains in which it rules. And so it's not a religion of tolerance either.
1: Tell us a little bit briefly about the history of nations that come under the banner of Islam. I mean, when the Muslims first move into a country and they are the minority, they live according to the laws of the land. But once they come into power, things change, don't they?
2: Yes. When the Muslims are a minority, then they call for tolerance, tolerance for them but then they don't extend the same tolerance to non-Muslims when they are ruling. They impose Islamic Sharia law, which institutionalizes this uh, uh, second-class status for non-Muslims, the status of dimitude that uh, denies various important rights to the non-Muslims in the Muslim society.
1: Now, give us an example of a Muslim country, let's say Saudi Arabia. How is Sharia law instituted and and those who are not Islam there what is their situation
2: Saudi Arabia is a special case because Saudi Arabia is what is known as the kingdom of the two holy places Mecca and Medina are the two holy cities of Islam or the holiest cities of Islam in any case and they are in Arabia and in Arabia in the first place non-Muslims are not allowed to go into those cities uh, as a matter of fact, there's even highway signs by them that say that uh, uh, non-Muslims must exit here, and uh, I have photographs of those. But they're also they're in Arabia, and on his deathbed, Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, said, uh, "Let there be no two religions on the Arabian Peninsula. Expel all the Jews and Christians from Arabia." And so there is no allowance in Saudi Arabia for any kind of non-muslim religious observance. As a matter of fact, the uh, American military even forbade American troops that were on Saudi soil in order to protect Saudi Arabia from Saddam Hussein. They did not allow them to have Bibles or any kind of non-muslim religious material with them in order to uh, placate the Saudis, even though we were doing them a favor. Now, in other countries that uh, enforce Islamic law, it's not that strict because the teachings of Islam allow for non-Muslims, particularly Jews and Christians, to practice their religions in an Islamic context, but they can only do so under various important restrictions that deny them equality of rights. They are not allowed to uh, have equality of rights, and there is, as a matter of fact, no Islamic country and no majority Muslim country in the world today that grants equality of rights to non-Muslims. There is always some way in which they are discriminated against.
1: Now most people believe that uh, violence is not connected to the true teachings of Islam and that most of these suicide bombers are uneducated, malcontent, you know poverty-stricken individuals and we can solve the solution with proper education and uh, money to solve their economic situation. How do you respond to that?
2: Well, you know, the Ottoman Empire was, at one time, and the earlier Islamic empires, the uh, Abbasids and the Umayyads and so on, they uh, were some of the most advanced civilizations in the world in their time. And they were certainly the most advanced military machines in the world in their time. And so, one would think, if it were true that jihad warfare comes from poverty, that those Uh, empires would not have waged a jihad against non-muslims, and yet they did. And one would think that if jihad warfare were caused by poverty, then somebody like Osama bin Laden, who's a very rich man, would have no interest in uh, jihad warfare, because, after all, he has money. But it is actually uh, something that is established by various studies, and many studies around the world, that uh, have been conducted over the last few years that show that uh, actually Islamic jihadists are better educated and wealthier in general than their peers, and that this is not something that, is, uh, that comes out of ignorant, poor people being manipulated, but rather, on the contrary, it is something that arises from people who are absolutely aware of uh, what they're doing, and they are doing it based on a clear understanding of the uh, Islamic, uh, of the Islamic the teachings of Islam on jihad warfare, and they're trying to fulfill those uh, teachings.
1: Now, some critics will say, well, the Old Testament is more violent than the Quran. Uh, what, how do you respond to that?
2: I would say that the Old Testament is—it uh, does contain some passages that depict violence. It never tells anybody to imitate them, and no Jewish or Christian interpreter of the Old Testament has ever take said well Joshua cleared out the, the Canaanites and so we should therefore clear out our enemies in the same way nobody has ever taken those passages as being exemplary or as guides to action as a matter of fact Jewish and Christian interpreters of the Bible have universally interpreted those passages as being as as referring to spiritual warfare the struggle within the soul and not to hot warfare uh, and so the, uh, in, the, the other thing is, is that there's not a, any terrorists. There are not Jewish or Christian terrorists around the world who are committing violence in the name of Judaism or Christianity and justifying it by reference to these Bible passages. Quite the contrary, there are many Islamic terrorists who are committing violence in the name of Islam and justifying it by reference to the Quran but uh, you don't find any jewish or christian terrorists and this is because the uh, the passages that are violent in the bible just simply aren't understood that as as marching orders for believers the way the quranic teachings that are violent are considered marching orders by muslims oh
0: well, if anything the the violence in the bible merely records it or reports it in in situations and certainly doesn't say, this is the way you are to be or to, to emulate this. Certainly not. But, you know, Pat, as you mentioned at the, at the beginning of the broadcast, that uh, the media talks about Islam being uh, a religion of peace. Uh, Dr. Spencer, it seems that some of their own PR campaigns want to uh, say that too. The U.S.-based Council on American Islamic Relations, or CARE, C-A-I-R, Claims that uh, the Quran reveals the true peaceful nature of Islam and promotes interfaith harmony. Now, how do they get away with that? Um, I mean, no, that's a right. that's a that's an Islamic group, and they're trying to say uh, they're based in America. That uh, oh, come on, it it is a peaceful book and a peaceful religion.
2: Well, they're trying to mislead us. I mean, that's very very simply, they are trying to pull the wool over our eyes. Oh. They are. Uh, giving a highly misleading and contendentious view of the Qur'an that leaves out the fact that the Qur'an mandates warfare against unbelievers and their subjugation, probably they're referring to those passages and obliquely saying that they promote interfaith harmony, because certainly there is interfaith harmony if all the non-Muslims submit to Islamic rule, then there's plenty of harmony. Just like there was in the Old South with the slaves uh, when they accepted their slavery, then everything was great.
0: Yeah, sure. I think the Qur'an, as I recall, uh, re- required some kind of a, of a taxation or something for non-believers. You know, you can practice your religion, but you've got to pay the, the tax.
2: Exactly. Yeah. The, the, the tax is mandated in Quran chapter 9, verse 29, and the tax is religion-based. Non-Muslims pay it, uh, specifically the Jews and Christians, also other so-called people of the book, and they uh, are the Muslims are exempt from paying it. Wow.
1: Now, Doc Spencer, you know, the Quran is a difficult book to understand. It's kind of like coming in the middle of a discussion here and trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, what's a good way to help understand the Quran?
2: I happen to have a new book out uh, called The Complete Infidel's Guide to the Quran, which is designed to to answer that question. And, uh, I mean, really, you have to have some kind of a guide to understand the Quran, because it is, it does refer many times to incidents that it doesn't explain, and it does not fill in the details, and it is also not ordered chronologically. It's not ordered in any logical way. Um, The chapters are arranged generally from the longest to the shortest, and so there's not really any kind of logical arrangement to it. And these kinds of things can be very off-putting to uh, non-Muslim Westerners and make it very hard to get to, very hard to understand. And so uh, a guide to the Quran, I believe, is, is vitally needed because it is, for all its difficulty, the, uh, the, the primary inspiration for Islamic jihadists. It is the book that explains what they're all about, why they are doing what they're doing and so we can understand their motives and goals by understanding the quran but to understand the quran itself is not so easy and hence the need for a guide
1: yes and i'm very glad that uh, you wrote this complete guide to the quran uh, because in in many uh, islamic commentaries they'll often sanitize a passage and not really say um, exactly what the passage intends. They, they kind of spiritualize it or sanitize it more so it's more acceptable here, uh, whereas you kind of just say it like it is.
2: Well, yeah. Uh, you have, for example, chapter 4, verse 34 of the Quran, which says that uh, good women are obedient and those that are, n- are not, beat them. And uh, in one of the foremost translations of the Quran that's used in English, that uh, by Abdullah Yusuf Ali, it says, beat them lightly. But the lightly is not in the Quran. It is something that's added in by the translator Abdullah Yusuf Ali in order to soothe Western sensibilities.
1: Yes, and that's why I'm I'm really glad uh, you wrote this. It's a well-needed book in understanding the Quran. Well, Dr. Spence, explain to us what's going on in Afghanistan and Iraq to non-Muslims there now that quote religious freedom has been brought to those countries. <laughs>
2: in Afghanistan and Iraq, what's really been brought is Islamic law. Uh, the, the constitutions of both countries enshrine Islamic law as the highest law of the land. And Islamic law does not give religious freedom. As a matter of fact, over half of the Christians who were living in Iraq before the Iraq war have left Iraq. And persecution continues because there are Muslims now in Iraq who believe that the Christians have to submit to the rule of the Muslims, and they are killing those who do not submit. And so you end up with a situation in which the, uh, the Christians are suffering more than they did under Saddam Hussein. And uh, that's the situation in Iraq. In Afghanistan, we had the very famous case of Abdurrahman a few years back. Abdurrahman was a uh, Muslim who became a Christian, and he was put on trial by the moderate Karzai government that American troops are propping up. He was put on trial for his life because Islam forbids Muslims to leave Islam. You have to stay in it. It's a room that's got a door in but no door out. And that being the case, Abdur Rahman was put on trial for his life. Uh, The State Department was shocked, and I remember a State Department spokesman saying, we want to remind the Afghan government that their constitution guarantees religious freedom. And the Afghan government replied, yes, it does guarantee religious freedom, but only within the bounds of Sharia, only within the bounds of Islamic law, and that means there is no freedom to leave Islam.
1: Doc Spencer, you think uh, we could really establish a democracy there in the Middle East in these two countries?
2: No. Uh, And that's because uh, Muslims generally are taught that uh... the islamic law is the law of god it is a comprehensive program for all of society it is a political and social system as well as a religious one and consequently it is uh... uh, not something that's open to voting it's not something that's open to the uh... will of the people it is something that is to be imposed from above and obeyed by the people and so the problem with uh the idea that we can bring democracy there is that there's this competing system that it has the loyalty of vast numbers of people in these countries and that they will always think that uh, in comparison to that system uh the any any kind of democratic system is rebelling against god that's a very powerful appeal to try to get over and i think ultimately any attempt to get over it will
0: be unsuccessful Dr. Spencer, it's been in the the news lately. What do you make of the case of the teen girl who converted to Christianity and has had to flee her family?
2: Well, it's a very sad case, really. It's a very very indicative case of some of the problems that we're facing, because most people don't understand that Islam does uh, forbid people to leave Islam on pain of death. And the Islamic advocacy groups are engaged in a large-scale deception campaign in order to uh, uh, fool people into thinking that there isn't. Any kind of death penalty for those who leave Islam. Although there are many, many cases around the world that I document all the time at Jihad Watch uh, that show that there is indeed this death penalty and that Muslims understand that there is this death penalty for those who leave Islam. And so uh, this girl is under threat. She says that her father threatened to kill her because she converted from Islam to Christianity. Uh, but she's 17. She fled from her family and uh, is in foster care now in Florida. But because of this full court press and the ignorance of law enforcement and the mainstream media, uh, it unfortunately does uh, appear as if she is going to be sent back to her family in Ohio uh, relatively soon. Now, that's not uh, something that guarantees that she'll be killed. Uh, certainly, but it does...
0: No, but we certainly have heard about honor killings.
2: Certainly, and it does make it a possibility. Uh, She says in her own testimony that she's afraid that what will happen is is that she will be taken back to Sri Lanka, which is where the family is from, and uh, killed or institutionalized there, and I think that is the most likely possibility.
1: Now that's here in the United States, uh, but that's a regular practice in countries where uh, Sharia law is the law of the land, isn't it?
2: Yes, definitely, and uh, it's uh, it's even you know it's openly done in those countries. There's no there's no controversy about it or spurtiveness about it at all.
1: Well, how should we deal with the war on terrorism, and and is it a war on Islam?
2: Um, the war on terrorism is not a war on Islam. George Bush and Barack Obama have uh, both very very repeatedly. Uh, insisted that it is not a war on Islam, and that uh, Muslims are welcome in the United States and are valued citizens and so on. Barack Obama is especially intent on communicating this to the world. And um, the problem is that Islam may be at war with us, that uh, while we are not at war with Islam, there is plenty of indication that uh, Muslims around the world are being exhorted to wage war against Americans and that they are doing, being, this exhortation is proceeding on the basis of Islamic teaching. And so uh, we haven't really formulated any kind of coherent response to the civilizational challenge that the jihadists represent. Um, they are uh, they are uh, challenging the foundations of our culture and civilization in numerous ways, and we're just essentially ignoring that challenge and hoping it will go away. I think that uh, it's not going to.
1: Yeah, Dr. Spencer. You know, as I travel around the world in several countries, for example, in Africa, you know, the goal of Qaddafi and you know countries like that is to make Africa a Muslim nation, and they're pouring millions of dollars into creating mosques and schools. Uh, in countries all over the continent is that's is that what you're seeing throughout the world
2: yeah uh, there's a tremendous effort to uh, proselytize on behalf of Islam and it is a concerted worldwide effort largely financed by the saudis and it is uh, proceeding according to Islamic teaching that uh, says that first you invite the non-believers to accept Islam, and then if they refuse, you go to war
1: with them. Dr. Spencer, how should we deal with the Islamic threat here in the United States? I mean, is the administration doing enough, and, and what kind of things do you advise?
2: administration is not even not not doing enough at all it's administration is working in the opposite direction it's uh, uh, Barack Obama in June 2009 in his uh, Cairo speech his his uh, much anticipated speech to the Islamic world he essentially Said that uh, the problems between the West and the Islamic world are all our fault. They're all America's fault. They're not uh, nothing that needs to be uh, done by the Islamic world. He said that it's all because of colonialism. It's all because of uh, the Cold War and because of the rottenness of American pop culture that the Islamic world is angry with us. And he uh, implied thereby that it's up to us to change this and to assuage that anger by changing our policies. Uh, the idea that they might hate us for something that uh, has nothing to do with what we have done, but has everything to do with their own w- of outlook on the world and their own assumptions in society, that doesn't seem to enter into their heads. That doesn't seem to enter into uh, the mind of Barack Obama or his advisors. And this is a grave error. Uh, it, it leads us down all sorts of uh, wrong paths. Like, for example, we keep thinking if we keep giving money to the Pakistanis, we'll win them over, we will show that we're good guys, and they will feel obliged to fight alongside us. Even though it's been documented that for years now, since 9-11, we've been giving them billions to fight terrorism, and they turn around and give it to the terrorists. And so the response of Congress to this was, let's triple the aid we're giving to Pakistan, as if it's just that we haven't been giving them enough money. The real problem is not that we haven't been giving them enough money. The real problem is is that we have not, because we refuse to look at what's taught in the Quran and what's taught by Islamic teaching in general. We keep thinking we can win over people we can never win over. And we keep thinking we can make friends out of people who are determined to be our enemies, not because of anything we have done or can do, but because of the way in which they view the world as Muslim.
0: Dr. Spencer, a lot of people do not know that the Iranian leader, Ahmadinejad, he believes that the Muslim Messiah will soon come on the scene, the 12th Iman, and so forth, and he feels like he's instrumental in bringing that about, uh, perhaps right. even through doing something very radical to to cause something of an apocalyptic nature. Is this true, what we hear about him, and how come we don't hear about that in the media, I wonder? It is
2: true, Uh, and it's because of why we don't hear about it in the media. The media is so complicit with the Islamic Jihad, it's it's appalling, but uh, why they are, I wish I knew. Uh, But I'll tell you, though, the Shiite Muslims, Iran is the uh, uh, is a Shiite Muslim country. Shiites are about 15 percent of Muslims worldwide, but about 99 percent of Iran. Um, they believe that the this Messiah figure, the the Imam Mahdi, uh, will return and uh, is is hidden away and has been since the 9th century, and he is hidden until a time when the Muslims are persecuted so terribly that he will return at that time to save the day. And so the Muslims will be suffering more than at any other time, at a time when the Mahdi returns. And so that has given rise to speculation, speculation that has been fueled by some statements made by some of the Iranian leadership, that they can take a few million casualties in a nuclear conflict, because then the Mahdi will return. And they, in other words, don't mind if there is some sort of uh, large scale destruction in Iran because that would just help them get to the point where they would be able to see this Messiah figure returning. and so this is this is really something people ought to be concerned about because he really believes this stuff. And so we we should take him seriously,
1: well, Dr. Spence, as we bring this show to an end, can you tell us how we can get this message? and make it more aware to to the public and to our leadership. How do we get them to understand the true teachings of Islam and the threat it poses to Western civilization?
2: Well, that's what I'm trying to do by writing these books. Uh, I have nine books out. The most recent is The Complete Infidel's Guide to the Quran, which is just what it says, a guide to the Quran for infidels so that they can understand what we're facing in terms of the motives and goals of the jihadists, and thereby formulate uh, more useful and effective policies to counter these things. I think the main thing we have to do is keep trying to raise awareness. And what we can do is just tell everyone you know and and, and, and read uh, the, the books that I'm writing, but also books by other people who are writing uh, material that's very important in this line, like Batya Orr, Andrew Boston, uh, and Daniel Pipes, and others, and, and Stephen Emerson. Uh, these people are um, giving information that is not getting out there in the mainstream media. Seek it out and educate yourself and then educate your fellow citizens. Uh, Our country is at stake, and that's no exaggeration.
1: Yes, and another great resource is your website, Jihad Watch. Tell us a little bit about it.
2: It is a news and commentary site, uh, updated many times daily, with uh, information about jihad activity in the United States and around the world. Information you're not going to get anywhere else.
1: Uh, That's Dr. Robert Spencer, an expert on Islam, addressing one of the great challenges, maybe the greatest challenge to Western civilization today. Dr. Spencer, thanks for being a guest with us. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zuccarin. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and intellectually considers spirituality. We hope to address issues like Islam's impact on spirituality and society in an honest and loving way. And we'd like you to join us. Please support us with your tax-deductible financial gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus. It's all at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers,